0: podcast one production.
1: The following production includes explicit language and deals with adult themes. Parental guidance is advised for those under 15 years. Welcome to episode nine of the trials of the vampire. Last time a civil war was raging within Victoria police as force command tried to purge its ranks using the allegations the author made. Deputy Commissioner Simon Overland wanted Peter Lawler and David Waters charged, but Briar's investigators refused. They were still hoping they would find the evidence to support the claims they'd been involved in Shane's murder. They had a chance if their number one suspect, Mark Perry, could be found. She'd moved on since Mark's disappearance nearly two years earlier. Eunice Whitford couldn't help but wonder what happened to her lover. He was good to her, funny and generous, but there were things he didn't share with her, things that seemed to haunt him. Depression stalked Mark, and sometimes he was enveloped in its dark embrace. Then one day, Mark just upped and left with no explanation, not even a note, nothing.
2: I don't know why Mark disappeared and I didn't hear anything from him until I met him in Perth.
1: In April 2009, Eunice was visiting her daughter in Perth when she bumped into Mark Perry. An actor is narrating a statement she gave to police.
2: I went to have a meal in a Vietnamese restaurant and I just saw him in the restaurant.
1: He looked so different she didn't recognise him at first. His blonde hair was long and flecked with grey. In 2007, he'd been gym-toned and muscular. Now he was gaunt and thin. He'd grown a bushy beard and was dressed in old shabby clothes.
2: But then I heard him laugh. I was just about to go home. Then I turned around and looked at him. He was with the Vietnamese man. I asked him why he was in Perth, because Johnny had told me he was overseas. Mark told me. It's a long story.
1: Chip Legrand of The Australian spoke to Perry about his years on the run.
0: course. Mark never left the country. He went to Sydney for a while. He ended up over in Perth and he lived this fairly kind of um, sort of monastic existence really as a as a laborer doing jobs for cash, paying his rent in cash, never using a credit card for anything, never leaving his real name anywhere. Um, he grew a beard, didn't have a driver's license, used to cycle around Perth to get around again with sort of basically living completely off the grid. Relied a bit on the generosity of friends, like, but just, uh, yeah, it was like something out of a Grisham novel.
1: While the Briars Task Force burned money looking for Perry in Southeast Asia, Lee, as he called himself, was hiding in Perth in plain sight. He was befriended and sustained by some remarkably incurious locals who never even knew his surname or why he turned up in the West. He washed dishes in a Chinese restaurant and then worked in a kitchen design business. He returned at least once to Victoria, unbeknownst to police. In late 2009, Yanisa moved to Perth to be with her daughter. Now Perry had someone to confide in, to unload the burden he'd carried for so long.
2: We were drinking at his apartment, and he talked about the police looking for him. He said it was about his ex-girlfriend, because a man had booked his ex-girlfriend out to a hotel, and that the man cut his ex-girlfriend's tongue. Mark was very upset and angry because they had planned to be together. Mark said that he was searching for the man's house until he found it. He didn't say why or when he went to the man's house. He didn't say that he was the one who killed the man. He said that the man is dead because of something to do with his snake, like it got held by a vampire. Mark would talk and then he stopped He just said that the man is dead because of a big hole in his neck like a vampire got him. Mark didn't say that he did it and he didn't say who did it.
1: He didn't confess to personally shooting Shane, but Yanisa told police Perry was full of remorse for what had happened.
2: One thing Mark said was, if it was now, the time that we were drinking, that the murder wouldn't have happened. Mark is a very different person now than he was when he was using drugs. That was the only time we talked about the murder. We never talked about it ever again. After we talked about that, I tried to separate myself from him, stay away from him.
1: I wonder if Eunice knew there was a $1 million bounty on Mark's head. She only had to Google his name to find out. The internet was awash with news of the hunt for the alleged vampire killer. Have you heard police have posted a $1 million bounty for the guy they think killed the vampire gigolo? Mark had been so careful, so disciplined for his seven years on the run. Maybe he thought he could trust Janisa, or maybe he was just tired of this life of anonymity. They entered a photo booth in Fremantle and posed for a portrait.
2: Earlier today, the police came to my home and had a conversation with me. They showed me a photo of Mark and myself from a photo booth. That photo was taken when Mark was living in Fremantle. I'm not sure when the photo was taken. I saw the photograph during the taking of this statement.
1: Police have charged a man over the murder of vampire gigolo Shane Chartres-Abbots after his arrest yesterday. Mark Adrian Perry was taken into custody in Perth after six years on the run.
0: I can confirm that yesterday a 45-year-old man uh, resided in Morley, was arrested by Western Australian police and uh, we've just successfully
3: applied for an extradition to Victoria and he will front the Victorian courts on Friday.
1: Speaking outside the Perth Magistrates Court, a spokesperson for the Bryce Task Force would not confirm whether the $1 million bounty on offer for Perry had been paid.
0: He's been charged with one count of murder, the murder of Shane Chartres-Abbott, which occurred on the 4th of June 2003. The victim's family have certainly been notified today in relation to the arrest. They were pleased that the investigation is progressing. Chip Legrand again. to have those seven years on the run and we're always looking out over your shoulder. I mean, it was almost a bit of a relief when he got caught. Cause I mean, it is exhausting, that, mm. that kind of a life. Once they captured, I mean, put it this way, he didn't put up a fight. Oh, and he was... I think he was kind of resigned to it in the end. And also, he thought it was inevitable. I think it surprised him more than anyone that he'd managed to evade capture for so long.
1: But this wasn't necessarily a one-way trip to jail for Perry. He told Chip LeGrand that on the flight back to Melbourne, Briar's investigators offered him a deal.
0: It was very much a deal. It was on the table, right up to the point where he was uh, charged with murder. You know, they, they said, look, if you tell us what you know about the corrupt police and we can help you out here. So, even Perry himself... Had he decided to implicate police, there's no doubt that he would have never faced a murder charge, that they would have, again, they would have been willing to put aside anything that Mark Perry might have done in order to, to really sort of nail these police.
1: If Perry did know about any involvement of Peter Lawler and Dave Waters in Shane's murder, he kept it to himself. Police had only vague hearsay on this, and Perry never made a statement. These Mm. things are are difficult and sensitive and in a meeting like this, a question
0: like this can end things. Mm. But did you ask him, did you do it? (laughs) I think I was too polite actually to ask him that. I'm saving that one up maybe for a future meeting.
1: A $30 million investigation now rested solely, precariously even, on the word of the author. He'd promised to deliver up corrupt police, but there were only three men in the dock when the case went to trial in 2014. Evangelos Gooses, Warren Shea and Mark Perry. Lawler and Waters were off the hook. The Crown was happy to use the story that they'd helped plot Shane's murder, but didn't have the confidence to charge them. In 2007, much to the fury of Deputy Commissioner Simon Overland, Senior Sergeant Ron Iddles refused to do it. Overland sent a superintendent named Rod Wilson to see Idles, who was then managing the Briars Task Force. He had orders from Overland that Lawler
0: and Waters be charged immediately. It tells them there's not enough evidence, that they haven't got enough to bring charges against these two. And Wilson says, well, that's what the boss wants. And it all says, well, you can tell them to go and get fucked. And he threatens to quit the task force if he's forced to lay charges against these guys. And he says, because you know what? If it goes to trial and I get asked why I decided to charge them, it'll say, because Simon Dameron told me to. And so rather than charging... Uh, Lawler and Waters, Idles decides to in effect walk away from the case.
1: But Idles wasn't quite finished with the case. After a decorated career, Idles retired from the homicide squad in 2014. His biography, The Good Cop, the true story of Australia's greatest detective, didn't mention his involvement in Briars, nor his role in securing a deal for the author.
3: Firstly, it is an extraordinary step for a career criminal to come forward to implicate himself in a crime and then be prepared to make statements.
1: In March 2008, the author was sentenced in the Supreme Court for Shane's murder and Ron Idle's offered up a character reference. He vouched for the author's courage in fingering Lawler and Waters and he seemed to validate the statements he'd made. An actor is playing Idle's part. Those statements implicate
3: a serving police officer and an ex-member of the police force. In my 32-year experience, I have never seen a criminal come forward and stand up and be prepared to give evidence against a member of the police force. This statement is crucial and vital to secure a conviction.
1: The Crown went even further in its advocacy for the author, an actor is playing the barrister.
4: Your Honour, it is my submission that the rooting out of corrupt police practices is of the highest, the very highest importance. So not only is the crime solved, but insofar as there is participation in that crime of police, a police officer and a former police officer, the character of the evidence is elevated enormously.
1: Somehow, the author had turned the brutal slaying of another human being into a community service. After hearing all this, the judge gave him life, but it would be served concurrently with the sentence he was already in for. His first possible parole date would remain as it was. That's less than 10 years away as we speak. It didn't appear to matter whether he was telling the truth or not. The author's own lawyer, Bernie Barmer, had grave doubts.
5: I've represented him... For years, for many different things. And um, in the human game of chess, he's a really good chess player. The police department should not have believed the author, who was just single-mindedly trying to get the best possible result for himself.
1: Forensic psychologist Tim Watson-Munro also knows the author well. Uh, Well, he he had no peer, really, uh, in terms of being able to
5: plan things well ahead of... The day in the game. I respected his intellect in that capacity, I didn't respect his behaviour, but uh, he, was like the, he was like the managing director of a corporation in some ways. Extraordinarily charismatic bloke, highly intelligent man, charming. I liked him a lot actually and that's what makes them so dangerous and powerful because they can seduce people into their realm quite easily. Lex Luthor, in his own way, when it came to manipulating people, and uh, always five steps ahead of the game in terms of what the target and the goal was.
1: Ange Gooses, whom the author betrayed as his loyal henchman in Shane's murder, was utterly seduced.
5: It's the mark of the accomplished psychopath to zero in on people's vulnerabilities. They recognise they may have low self esteem, so they build up their self esteem. They give them a sense of purpose, and before they know it, the poor old vulnerable person is uh, enmeshed in so much crap that they can't extract from it. Which is what happened with Evangeloscusis. Certainly that was a very curious dynamic in many ways, Uh, a very strong bond between the two of them. With people such as the author, it gave you a sense of power that you two were in many ways untouchable. And the severity, magnitude and gravity of what you're doing is desensitised by the company you keep. It almost becomes normalised.
1: The author's capacity to manipulate was well known to police. So it's surprising to me that Briar's task force took his stories so far when there were so many obvious flaws. Perhaps the author had spotted the vulnerability of the cops too. David Waters has a theory on this.
3: I think they just wanted to believe it and um, when you look at the cost um, and the money that's been spent on this, people have been um, going backwards and forwards asking for ex gratia monies because it's outside of the budget of the police department so they've got to go up and say we believe we can do this and it had its own uh, motion and they weren't going to stop it. Because otherwise someone was going to turn around and have to say we've made one of the greatest fuck-ups of all time from the start.
1: After the break, the trial of the vampire killers begins. The stage was set for the author's moment in the spotlight. However, there was a twist. When the trial arrived, he refused to leave his cell. He complained that media reporting of the case had broken suppression orders and put his family at risk. Ron Iddles was dispatched to the jail to coax him back into the fold to fulfil his deal
0: with the Crown. Idles has known him for long enough by then to know that you can't... There's no sense, you know, putting a proverbial gun to his head and threatening him and telling him he has to do something. It's, it's just a matter of sitting back and almost letting him sort of go through the whole process of him convincing himself that it is still in his best interest to testify. And eventually he does, he does testify, but it's... Um, it's with a bit of a sting in the tail.
1: The author refused to be in the courtroom for his evidence, so he appeared by video from jail.
0: And these things tend to be a bit clunky, so there's always the frustration of the link being severed and the, and the screen goes blank and then, and then they have to sort of get him back and, and then the, some of the answers aren't quite audible. For
1: the first time, the author was subjected to a searing examination, something the police had never done as they lunged for the carrots he dangled before their eyes. He could no longer dictate the terms of his story, nor control the tempo of how it was told. Every syllable was open to question.
0: He had his evidence led by the Crown, but then there was, of course, three defence attorneys who all wanted to have their crack at him, and then the the Crown got a second go. Uh, It was a sort of a, you know, at times, it was sort of rambling and nonsensical. At times, it was very pugnacious. The point at which it all turned sour for the Crown case was in re-examination. So after all the defence lawyers had had their go and, and he was being um, questioned again on a few matters, he was asked about exactly what Warren Shea had, had asked him to do.
1: The author's answer realised the worst nightmares for the Briars investigators. The credibility of their witness dissolved before their eyes. Actors are playing the author and the Crown prosecutor.
3: I've wrestled with this for quite some time. I've wrestled with it every night before I go to sleep. The words that we used, the exact words that we used, I can't recall. I can't even say to you now, did he ask me to murder him? I walked away from that conversation with the belief that they wanted him harmed.
1: What do you mean by
3: harmed? Hurt, hurt badly. Anything from broken bones to broken ribs. I'd be lying if I said he said I want him
0: murdered. From that point, really, any notion of a conspiracy to murder evaporated in the courtroom, and the Crown really understood at that point that its case was sunk.
1: And the notion of police involvement in the murder was also swept away. The author's lawyer, Bernie Barmer, told the court it was he who organised for his client to attend Paran Police Station for the execution of the outstanding warrant on the afternoon of Shane's murder, not the author. It was just dumb luck that Peter Lawler had been on duty that day.
5: I can tell you now that I wrote to the informant in his .05 case to have the warrant that was issued for failing to appear sent to Paran police station for the warrant to be executed.
1: So the idea that he organised with Lawler to do it that day is just pure bollocks then? Total bullshit.
4: Total <laughs> bullshit. It was- nothing unusual about it. I'd done it uh, on other occasions for Bernie. Uh, After I'd executed, I thought, well, that'd be the last I uh, see of him, of that particular individual. Never thought for one minute that uh, that uh, would uh, then lead to uh, me being accused of uh, murder. So, There you go. It's amazing how life turns out. (laughs) Doesn't it? Obviously, it was construed
1: later on by the author as an alibi. But I don't see how it's even an alibi in anyone's terms. I mean, the murder occurred in the the morning just before nine. Mm. This appearance at the Pran (gasps) Police Station was late afternoon after three o'clock, wasn't it? Yes. How does that... I thought alibi is supposed to cover when you were doing something. And if I had murdered someone that morning... To not turn up to an appointment would tend to cast suspicion over you. So you would go, wouldn't
4: you? Yes. (laughs) If I was going to uh, have an alibi, it would have been a far better one than than that one. To get involved with that particular person, I mean, he's uh, a well-known rat. Uh, He's the type of person who would uh, sell his mother and mother-in-law and deliver. Um, That's the sort of individual we're dealing with.
1: The alibi story was totally discredited, but to this day the author has stuck to it. He also maintains that he was given Shane's address by Peter Lawler, which he's strenuously denied. Of course, police did know that back then, anyone could have accessed the address from the Victorian electoral rolls, simply by going to their local library. Defence counsel came up with 23 separate inconsistencies of fact in the author's statements. Due to the fact he'd pled guilty to the murder, very few of the factual flaws were examined in the trial. Especially the forensic evidence, where the author's story was particularly weak. And without the help of supportive police to massage his evidence, the author's story fell apart like paper mache in the rain. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict?
2: I... I knew we were not guilty. 100% knew we were not guilty. But I was waiting for a guilty. guilty.
1: Many of Ange Gussis' family were in court for the verdict. His nieces and nephews spoke to me, but want to remain anonymous.
2: Same. I sat in that court case and I waited for a guilty. And when we got not guilty, I out loud, yeah, like I, I yelled. I yelled. And then I clapped, yeah. and then we cried. Like, we didn't expect What it. the hell? Did we? Did I just hear? Gi- and then we were all talking to each other. Did they just say not guilty? We didn't yeah. expect it. And then they said it again, like you know, and for this particular, uh, I can't remember word for word what it was. And then we heard not guilty again. I went, what? Yeah. Did we just hear not guilty? Yeah. Like we were just high fiving.
0: Wow. Eleven years. So Ange Gooses, who by this stage has been convicted of two murders, he's serving thirty-five years. And I remember him standing up and, and saying to the jury, thank you, you know, no one's ever said those words to me in a courtroom before.
4: <laughs> Cold comfort, Can you go back
1: to Barwon and resume your crushing sentence. By contrast to Goose's, Mark Perry remained an enigmatic reserve figure throughout the trial, right up to the verdict. His mates and former lovers had betrayed him, but he'd walk out of the court a free man. The Briar's task force had ignored Penny's damning claim that Perry had apparently confessed to shooting Shane. It's arguable the Crown's fixation on nailing corrupt police had taken the heat off him. David Waters.
3: I ran into someone who was in the police force still and reasonably high up. At that stage, or just after that statement, he said to me, they've got the wrong black, meaning the author, because the moment that statement was made it was corroborated by the forensic evidence with the gsr on the victim's hand the entry wound under the chin the fact that he would have had to have been struggling with him to put it under his chin and shoot him
1: former cop chris costo a mate and ally of lawler waters and angusus also sat through the trial
4: you've spoken to perry how does he strike you mate, he's very smart like he's never said anything to me about this you know he's and i don't expect him to but He's no, he's no deal, definitely no deal. This has affected him in a big way, but he's certainly no deal. When I spoke to him, he, he said, I want to be left alone, I'm a loner. And, and the, you know the funny thing about it is, and it's just the way that that world works. When you're flying high, everybody wants to be part of you and they all want to you know feed off the scraps off your table. The minute you don't provide those scraps, you're dispensable. And that's just the way that it works. You know, he, um, everyone has their day, he's had his. He knows what's happened. He knows what's happened.
1: Suspicion still hangs over Mark Perry, but there was nothing beyond Penny's statement to tie him to the murder scene, and he was acquitted of the conspiracy. For police, it's hard to walk away from a man willing to confess to murder, even if he's a compulsive liar. However, Australia's so-called greatest detective, Ron Idle's, spent more time with the author than any other cop and still firmly believes his confessions, even if he won't say it in public these days. Chip Legrand.
0: No, I think he honestly believes, he believes the author, he believes him on the involvement of uh, police corruption in this murder. Um, Certainly he believes that the author did it.
1: I hear the author puts a different complexion on his failure in court. He says he got things wrong in his evidence deliberately. It was part of a deeper agenda. He was always going to recant when he got to court to ensure his mates Ange and Warren got away scot-free, but not before he taught them a lesson. In this version, he became their protector and saviour. But someone like Ron Iddles would believe him does carry weight. It makes me keep an open mind to this. One possibility really is starting to weigh on me, right? We've heard in the past, we've seen how the informer at different times has manipulated events. Is there a possibility that at the end of the day, he did do this and it happened exactly the way that he
4: said? And that all these people he talked about were involved exactly the way that he said. But then his failure in court to prove it, to
1: be shown up, all the holes in the forensics, all the lies, all the inconsistencies, which demolish his credibility. Ultimately, could he say to them, "You did it, and I got you
0: off"? <laughs> Have you thought of that possibility? That it was the whole thing was a big sting. Has he actually changed his evidence right at the end because he knows he? upsets the whole Apple card, that he's almost booby-trapped the Crown case. Maybe. Who knows? Who really knows?
1: Yes, indeed, who knows? It's only the author who can answer that question. And does the truth really matter anyway? I'm reminded of what George Slim, the prosecutor in Shane's rape case, had to say about the nature of our legal system.
0: It's not about the truth, it's about proof and uh, plausibility. Reasonable doubt is plausibility. You don't have to be true to raise a doubt, it just has to be plausible.
1: How many cases you've been involved with where these scenarios are plausible, but they're not true?
0: Oh, I'd say many. (laughs) Many, 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 many. That's that's what reasonable doubt's about. People have
4: gone to jail or or,
0: or not 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 gone.
3: I think more often not gone. More often, I'd say, roughly speaking.
4: But that's what reasonable doubt's about.
1: In the end, the author's story failed that plausibility test and the jury awarded the full benefit of the doubt to Mark Perry, Ange Gooses, and Warren Shea, in equal measure to each individual, whether they deserved it or not. In Shane's case, he never got that benefit. His executioner saw to that. The trial had come to an end. A judgment had been made. The true story had not been told, at least in my opinion
4: look uh, in time uh, history may very well judge this period of uh, Victoria police history very poorly um, it wasn't a, a good day for Victoria police this is one of those matters there have been no solutions there have been nothing has been resolved uh, nothing has been resolved for the victim he was terribly injured she didn't really want him to die like that she uh, she just wanted him to be uh, be punished but not to be killed mm. so um, so far as the legal system is concerned, it's unresolved um, for Shane, it remained unresolved, for Shane's partner it was unresolved, then of course uh, people were charged for his murder and, and that has uh, resulted in acquittals so it, I guess that means that we don't know who, who, who murdered Shane.
1: Well, we don't. I mean, we have one person who's confessed to it, who well, yeah. the physical evidence yeah. just doesn't support yeah. Yeah. his contentions. Yeah. Yes. So it is a, a, a mystery within a mystery within a
4: mystery.
1: Just a hypothetical to finish. What would happen if someone else claimed to be Shane's killer? What if that person were to walk into a police station and say, I need to cleanse my soul. I was the one who killed Shane Chartres Abbott and here was the gun I used what would the police do? Would they say, take your gun and go away, we've got someone for this murder? I wonder about that. Next time on The Trials of the Vampire, I'll wrap up this series asking the question, will there ever be justice for Shane Chartres-Abbott? The Trials of the Vampire is a Podcast One production. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Producer, writer and narrator is Adam Shand. Editing, mixing and original music score is by Matt Nikolic. Research by Nicole Gunn. Additional research by Alison Caldwell. Associate producer is Carly Humby.